Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical lead or a practice manager and your primary care network to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to deliver some of your projects and network-based services, I would absolutely love to help you. So come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Now let's jump into this week's episode. Hi and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Tara Humphrey and for those of you that are new to the podcast, thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, I'm speaking with Karen Middleton. Karen is the CEO at the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy, the organisation's first female CEO. Now one of the things that attracted me to Karen was her honesty I was part of a panel where Karen had shared she'd issued an apology to her team for their slow response regarding Black Lives Matter. And I wanted to understand how it felt, why she was slow in or why the organization was slow in responding, the impact of saying nothing, the impact of the fear of getting it wrong. What is life like where if you're in the middle of two crises and or two crises, and how do you manage that? How do you get up every day and think, what have I got to deal with now? What does it feel like to be in a position where where she's got just over a hundred staff and thousands of members? She cannot please all of them. So, what is life like as a CEO? What is her job, and how does she balance and manage that pressure? I also asked Karen what she's really learned about herself during what has been quite a difficult period. And that is the start of COVID. And we're recording this into the summer. So we're not over it yet. But we talk about the importance of integrity, values, admitting when you don't know things and leading in the service of others. Um, I love it. I love these sorts of interviews. And then at the end, um, it's quite um, a heavy interview. So we round off. Some of you might be getting used to my quick fire questions. They're a little bit of fun just to see the lighter side of somebody after the hard hitting questions I've just been asking. (laughs) Um, I hope that you like it. As always, give us a shout out on social media. You can find me at THC Primary Care on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can find me at LinkedIn at Tara Humphrey. And I will see you in the next episode. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for joining me on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. So our paths cross when the lovely Rachel Moses invited us both to come on a podcast to talk about diversity. And I just thought that you spoke so well. And there are some things I want to dig into a little bit more. But before we get started, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell them what you do and a little bit about your career to date? Yeah. So 
I'm Chief Executive of the Charter Society of Physiotherapy, which is both the trade union and professional body for UK physiotherapists and support workers. And the CSP is representative and advocate and supports our members, advises our members across all sectors. So health, social care, education, industry and the private sector too. So that's what the organisation does. I manage about 147 staff and we have four offices across the UK and a large proportion of staff who work from home. And of course, at the moment, all uh, staff are working at home due to covid I joined the CSP in 2014, so I've been there six years. I'm the first woman and the first physiotherapist to be the chief executive at the CSP. And it was never sort of planned step in my career. I didn't ever think at any point what I really want to be is chief exec at the CSP. But I've looked back at my career and, and what I've discovered is that all the steps that I've made tend to be two areas that I have been critical of where I've sort of decided, well, rather than keep being critical, I think I need to join and see if I can do something about it. So I started my career as a physiotherapist. I'm still registered as a physiotherapist in the NHS, did some private work from time to time, did some teaching as well, and then gradually just worked my way up through management and into leadership positions moved into more multidisciplinary work. So outside of physiotherapy, outside of the other allied health professions, into nursing, into primary care. And then I joined the regional London regional office to work on primary care policy. And then finally, I went to the Department of Health, was a professional officer advising on allied health. And then In 2007, I became the Chief Allied Health Professions Officer for England. And from that job, I moved to the CSP. Very much a career in public service, very much in health, but lots of teaching nationally and internationally on the way. So when you said you were the first woman to be the CEO in your organisation, when you got the job, did you know that you were the first woman to ever hold that position? I thought I might be, only because the last few chief execs that I remembered as a member of the CSP, as a physiotherapist, were men. But I didn't really know. And and it, it was quite interesting, actually. It wasn't, I think, until I had an interview about me being appointed to the chief exec post by our magazine that I realised that actually, yes, I was the first woman. I knew I was the first physiotherapist because they made quite a big thing of that interview. I remember saying to them, don't appoint me because I'm a physiotherapist. Appoint me because you think I'm going to be a really good CEO because the job description doesn't require you to be a physiotherapist. And I think that's absolutely right. I don't think there's, I mean, I think my experience tells me that there's been big advantages in me being a physiotherapist, but there's also disadvantages as well. So, but in terms of the female issue, quite a lot was made of it. And I think that's largely because we're a predominantly female uh, profession. The the assumption is that there would have been a, a woman at the top before now. What's it like being the first? Did you, yeah, what's it, what's it like or what was it like? I don't really think about it. 
I, I honestly don't. I mean, the chair of council is my boss and council, you know, is the governing body. And there's always been plenty of women and probably more female chairs than male, if you look back in history. But being the first woman, I mean, I've done quite a few conferences where I've been invited to speak about to and about being a female leader. And, you know, I've always really struggled, actually, to talk about the difference it's made to me because because I've never really thought about it. I've often felt quite tense about talking about being a female leader because I haven't got children and I haven't had that same nightmare of juggling my sort of kids and school and family as well as work so so I've not had some of those aspects of being a woman in charge I think and I've always been you know I have two brothers I love football I've I've worked and lived in in many sort of male dominated environments so do you know what it really isn't something that's that, that crosses my mind it really doesn't hmm, that's good <laughs> I speak to lots of people that don't have children and feel that when you said sometimes I feel tense because maybe not, you know, not everybody can relate. You can't relate to women building their career that have got children, but I understand that. And I have got three children, but I still want to hear about your journey and your career. You know, kids are a big part, but I don't know. Sometimes I think, I don't care that you don't have kids. I want to know about no, and, and I un- steps. Yeah. How did you go from physiotherapist yeah. to CEO? Regardless, I'm yeah. not interested in the family. Stuff. Yeah, no. Um, and the only reason I mentioned the kids thing is because, you know, sometimes I think when I see my colleagues, my work colleagues or my friends who come to work in any job with kids, I just think, I, I, how is it you manage to sort of look half decent in the morning, (laughs) Uh, never mind have a brain that thinks because it just seems, I mean, how could you possibly look like you do in a house that looks reasonably tidy behind you and have three (laughs) kids? I mean, it just seems entirely impossible to me. So that's the reason that, that I mentioned that. I mean, when I'm talking to students, for example, I, I always tell the story that when I left my physiotherapy training, one of the tutors said to me, of course, Karen, your career is blighted because you come from Essex and your first job isn't going to be in a London teaching hospital, both of which were true facts. Now, I was 21. I mean, what a thing to say to someone. What a thing to say to someone. And actually, I was reminded last year you think, don't you, that the world has moved on and, and that was 30 odd years ago and of course that wouldn't happen now. And I was um, in Birmingham talking to some students and I told this story and, and I tell it because what I say is the only person limiting what you do and what you achieve is you. Don't let anyone else limit you. And this student came up to me at the end and she'd been spoken to by her tutor that she, her career was limited because she had a Birmingham accent. Now, bearing in mind, probably most of the patients she was treating also had Birmingham accents. I'm not sure what the problem was. But <laughs> this had been said to her, and I was just so shocked that that still happens. So, 
I don't know whether my journey is almost as a result of that comment that was a little bit of, right, well, if you think that that's what's going to happen, you've got another thing coming, I am going to achieve. My parents gave me a strong work ethic. My parents pushed me. You know, I'm not academically bright. I can be lazy. But if I want something, then I'll really go for it. And I think the other thing that I have done in my career is build relationships and in all sorts of what different worlds. You know, I love people and I'm really interested in other people. And those connections and putting people in touch with each other as well as connecting me in have given me all sorts of opportunities not that they've given me jobs, but they've given me opportunities that I've then used to be able to move on as a result of taking advantage of those opportunities. I'm also really curious and really interested in learning new things. So my master's is in organisational development, a psychoanalytic approach. So looking at the unconscious in organizations. Now, you know, as a physiotherapist, we sort of got to the neck and did about two hours on the brain in the whole three years I trained. We do, That was it as far as our psychology went. But I've always been under, interested in what happens in organizations. Why, why do some teams work and others don't? And so I did my master's in that subject. I mean, I had a thesaurus with me most of the first year because I didn't have a clue what most people were talking about. I had never read Jung. I hadn't read Freud. But I was really fascinated to to learn and understand it. And so it's taken me in all sorts of different directions as a result of of being curious and, and being interested in different things. And I think it's exposed me to lots of other people and given me opportunities that I I just never thought I would have. But I mean, I've also had to learn. I mean, when I qualified, I did have a plan and I got divorced quite early on and that sort of buggered the plan completely. And then I learned that I had to chill out about this plan and just go with things And what I've really learned about myself is I'm less interested in the status or the title or the position. What I'm interested in is the work and whether it's a worthwhile job and whether it will make a difference to other people. I really strongly believe in service leadership and leading in the service of others and what needs to be achieved. I won't use the word lucky. A lot of people have said to me, you're really lucky. And I just say, no, I'm not lucky. It's been bloody hard work. I think it's a combination of hard work and good fortune that have come together, really, in what I've been able to do. So you mentioned it's the work and leadership and service. What is the work of a CEO today? What do you have to do? What are you responsible for? What I see my role as at the CSP is enabling the 147 staff that I lead to work at their full potential because I am the least hierarchical person that you could meet. I believe in hierarchy in an organisation to contain anxiety, but I am not hierarchical in my behaviour. And what I realised very quickly when I came to the CSP that there's huge talent there, but it just wasn't being released and, and people weren't able to fulfil their full potential. And that actually 
that's what my job has been in terms of trying to change the culture of the CSP. My job has also been about trying to bring together different people across the organisation with different talents, different ideas, different experiences to create something that's even better. I see another part of my job is bringing the outside in. So I often describe the role of a CEO as sitting on the balcony of an organisation so that I'm looking outwards at the external context for the organisation to make sure that the organisation is relevant to that external uh, context. But I'm also looking inwards at what um, I'm leading internally to make sure that it is developing according to that external context. So I, I definitely see myself on that balcony. Is the culture of the CSP where it should be? Not quite yet. So when I joined, I felt that the CSP, we, I did lots and lots of focus groups to hear from different members of staff. And I'm only talking about the culture within the 147, not the 59,000 members, which obviously I have a lot less control over. But the culture at the CSP was quite hierarchical. So all decisions seemed to come up to me. It was not particularly entrepreneurial. It was very clan. And what I mean by that is you couldn't meet a kinder organisation to work for, really compassionate towards each other, really helpful, all of the things that you'd want to be seeing in an organisation you work in. But it was just a bit too clan, so that giving any negative feedback was quite hard. You know, like families, it's really hard to say something critical, which, you know, I really do believe feedback is a gift and, you know, we have to have that critique to improve. So, so that was missing. And what we did was start by developing the four values of the organisation, inclusivity, courage, learning and integrity, and then describe the behaviours that we expect to see as part of those values. And we've come a hugely long way and actually, COVID has been a real test. So at the beginning of COVID, we had to think about, right, are we going into command and control? And of course, big organisations like the NHS simply have to. But we chose not to because that was counter to the culture that we'd been trying to develop. And I think as a result, what people experienced within the CSP is that they had a level of autonomy they were clear about what we needed to do and they just got on and did it. And we're reviewing our response at the moment, but I think that side of it was good. We need to be a little bit more agile, a bit more fleet of foot. The trouble is most people don't really appreciate that we are a member-led organisation. So as much as I'm the CEO I am accountable to council who is accountable to the 59,000 members. So things take longer than one might first expect. And, 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 and that is to my frustration. I'm, I'm a pretty impatient person. So, yeah, that's where we're at, at the moment, I'd say. So how we met is through a discussion around equality and diversity and in that, it was a panel discussion and you had said that you recently issued an apology to your team for the slow response regarding Black Lives Matter. Why did you take so long to respond? I issued two apologies. 
one to the membership, so the 59,000, and one internally to my staff. But they said fairly similar things. We did respond to Black Lives Matters about a week after the George Floyd death and sort of it took on that major emphasis. But given we're a trade union, given social justice is very important to us, I think we should have responded earlier and said something. The reason that I also apologise to my staff, and this is what triggered my thinking, actually, about all of this, was at the end of every week, I send an all-staff email that's pretty chatty. It's not anything mind-blowingly important. What I've done in the week, you know, flagging achievements that people have made, you know, it's just a sort of keeping in touch. And of course, it's been very important during COVID when we've all gone virtual. On that Friday, I put in and took out a paragraph about three times about Black Lives Matters. And the paragraph read something like, I'm sure many of you are shocked by what we've uh, been witnessing you know, it's a terrible thing, something along those lines. But I put it in and I took it out three times. And in the end, I left it out. And I really, a member of staff emailed me from the BAME community and she said, really surprised that you didn't say anything about that, which I normally would. So if there'd been an earthquake somewhere or, you know, anything sort of monumental, I would have said And I just thought, why didn't I? Why didn't I? And I realized that the reason I hadn't was because I was frightened of saying the wrong thing, of getting the language wrong, of just not quite getting the right tone. By then, we'd got something out to the membership. And I thought, why wasn't I saying to the team that would do it, you know, hang on a minute, we haven't done anything on Black Lives Matters. What's going on? You know, I mean, I wouldn't sort of generate the work, but I I hadn't sort of spotted it, pushed for it, etc. And I think the, the reason were the same, that it wasn't high enough on my radar. We were in the middle of COVID, which isn't a reason, not an excuse. And it just wasn't the priority for me. It should have been alongside the fear of getting it wrong. And, and it was interesting because particularly when I made the public apology to the members, uh, it was very interesting, the reaction I got, which ranged from, thank you for that apology, it was needed, or it was long overdue, through to, who on earth do you think you are apologising for your white skin, which of course I wasn't apologising for, and very abusive, and everything in between. But many people said that it had got them to look internally at themselves and certainly that's what it did for me was actually start to really go back to basics about who am I who am I and what do I believe in and what does matter and what do I stand for so that's the story of those apologies yeah what would you say to so I have we were talking off air that I have experienced people my perception is they just don't know what to say to me. And that, that's not, not even like, hello. Like, it's not like we have to, every conversation has to be about diversity. But I have noticed people subtly and quite 
you know, uh, visibly take a step back from wanting to engage with me when before, you know, before June or, you know, May, June time, it was all relatively fine. And I do understand, you know, that I've been in situations where it's not about race, but you don't want to, you, you, don't, you are frightened to say, you don't want to put your foot in it. But the silence and the feeling of being ignored or that it's not a priority or it's not on your radar, I sometimes think is more damaging than it actually is. getting it wrong. Yeah. That, that's definitely what I've learned. And that's what I've been told. And I mean, I can't tell you how much I've read, watched and listened since um, my apologies. And I've learned that there's ways of saying things that you're unsure of. My intention is this. If I get this wrong, please tell me and explain. I've also learned that part of this journey is about feeling uncomfortable. And when I've been at my most uncomfortable is when I've learned the most, actually. But it's being prepared to do that. Now, I mean, if we were to take... So so one of my interests is, is really about leadership and... And I think that you get to a point, whether it's age, maturity, life experience, when you are prepared to be vulnerable yourself. And I'm definitely in that place. That isn't to say that I go around, you know, just sort of not knowing anything, because obviously (laughs) I do. I'm quite prepared to be vulnerable and say when I don't know. But I think for some people that is really hard. Then when you add equality and diversity issues into the mix, which go to the very heart of who you are as a person. I think it, it's, it can be really difficult, but I, what I've tried to do is every time I get that sort of sense of, oh, steer clear on this subject, I almost do the opposite because I know that, that where I'll be when I come out of it will be more knowledgeable and less ignorant. I also use questions a lot. You know, we were talking earlier about the word support, you know, and I have asked, what, why, why is that unhelpful when I use it? And then you learn. I am sure that I will get it wrong and I have got it wrong, but I really do believe not to say anything is a whole lot worse. And that's why I think the conversations that Rachel has been trying to instigate have been really useful because I think that if you can look at some senior leaders struggling it's not about giving permission but it signals doesn't it that you know it might not be easy but it is really worth doing and we all win out of this that's the thing for me we all win well thank you for that firstly and how do you and as a life as a CEO and I'm a CEO on a very small scale when you were saying sometimes we get it wrong, it's like, can you ever always get it right? You know, like you can never really get it right, especially when in your case, there are so many people looking to you. So there is always that element, yeah. you know, and without being facetious, a hundred people may say, I don't like the word support. I'm saying, I don't mind, you know, like for whatever you do, there will always be, you can't please everybody. How does it feel to get out of bed each day and not be thrown in the line of fire because actually, you know, like you're stepping into it because it's your job rather than being thrown. But that a bit of fear of 
I'm like, I'm going to get it. I'm always going to get it wrong every single day. I may get it wrong. I'm going to get it wrong. I've said, I'm sorry. How many times can you say that you're sorry? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, I wish more senior leaders, whether CEOs or not, said and described how they feel most days. Because I've talked to lots and most people will say most weeks, at least, if not every day, they feel worried about something, frightened about something, scared about something. And the reason why I think it's important that we talk about these things is because people who aspire to these positions, and I coach people and I mentor people, and a lot of them think that people in my position or your position have some extraordinary power or extraordinary qualifications or extraordinary life experience. And to my knowledge, most of us haven't. So I think it's really important that they understand that, that you know, we don't swan around knowing all the time that what we're doing is the right thing and we got it right and it was really, you know, all slick and, and, and everything. So that's the first thing. I think I have days when I wake up. I mean, I have to say that over during COVID, I wasn't nearly as anxious as I have been, in all honesty, since Black Lives Matters. And the reason was during COVID, I had absolute clarity about what I should be doing and what I shouldn't. And all the rest of it just sort of paled into insignificance. With Black Lives Matters, I've had more mornings when I've woken up thinking, oh, now what? Or have I got this right? Or really anxious about it because it almost matters more because it is what it fundamentally says about me, my attitude, and also how many people it matters to. And when it comes to not getting it right, I mean, the most important value out of the four values I described for the CSP is my, the value that matters most to me, and it's integrity. And I've always said, no one can take away your integrity, only you can give it away. And so the way I deal with it is to absolutely say things or do things with integrity. For example, we have a sort of twice yearly big sort of staff event where we bring everyone together. So this is internally. And I've been thinking about how we might use that event around standing up as an organisation to be anti-racist. So I, I tested out some ideas that I'd had with the staff from the BAME community in, in my organisation. And honestly, the feedback I, I got ranged from, are you mad? <laughs> this is, you know, don't be ridiculous. Right through to, what a fantastic idea. Why don't we bring in a comedian? <laughs> you know, which I was thinking, mm, I'm not sure about that. And everything in between. Do you know what I mean? There were every opinion. And I was sort of sitting there thinking, oh, no, so I'm going to upset someone. But, you know, I tested it out. And then I came to the conclusion, right, not to cover it seems unusual. And something's got to be said because it's the first time we've brought all the staff together since COVID, since Black Lives Matter. But I've got to be really careful about putting people in a place 
white or from the BAME community feeling uncomfortable. You know, it's, it's a huge endeavour. It's not really a safe space. But what I knew was that my integrity was intact in terms of asking them, not making up the decision myself. And the judgment I was making was with integrity. Now, having said it and and come to a conclusion, I'm sure that there will be people at least at either end of the spectrum who will be disappointed in me. But as you said at the beginning, there comes a point when that's what you're paid for, really. Yeah. And I don't, I really don't do this job to be liked. Now, I'm just as human as the next person and I have an ego like the next person. And, you know, to say that I don't want to be popular is, is madness. But doing the right thing is not always going to make you popular. But at least I know my integrity is intact. And I think that's the thing that's so important to me. Other outs or not other than alongside your integrity, what is the biggest thing that you have learned about your leadership, leadership in a crisis since COVID hit and taking in consideration Black Lives Matter? And all the other stuff that you have to do, you know, like these are two massive things, but there are millions of things that you have to do all the time, all the time. What have you learned about yourself and how you respond in a crisis? Well, I've learned that I can be, I am my own worst critic. So I have learned that I have to give myself a break for not always getting it right. And, And the phrase perfect imperfection is what, I aim for really. I have learned that I need, in terms of my health and well-being, space and time, and not to feel bad about it. Particularly during something like COVID, where although we weren't in the NHS, we were supporting our members, which was sort of driving a very rapidly changing agenda. And And I had to make sure that I was building in space for me to think and take time to look after myself. But the thing I've probably learned most is the value of the team. And I've long thought that you can't suddenly become a resilient organisation. You have to have built that resilience in over time. So one of the reasons we were able to respond as we have done and all suddenly go virtual within a week, et cetera, is because we've built resilience into the way we work. We had already been doing work on distributed leadership and our culture. We'd already been doing work on the team. And my leadership team around me were all very different from each other. And the value of that difference during something like COVID came into its own. So even I'll often describe, you know, I had one de- director who was absolutely loving it in the first few weeks, you know, <laughs> high energy, bring it on, you know, loves the crisis. You know, I had another one who was sort of feeling completely overwhelmed and then it changed and it shifted the other way around. And I think as a team, if you've got to know each other, A, you can spot the signs of when someone's going through a low or someone's going through a high and you can be resilient for each other at different times. I'm very people focused. I'll look out for the people and how they are. I have others in my leadership team 
who are more driven by the data and understanding what's going on and, and from and you need all of that yeah. so the value of diversity in the team and i think with something like covid you could very easily end up in a group think situation so being able to challenge each other no i don't think you've got that right i i really want to probe this with you whatever the conversation is i think as a result of that you then end up coming out of it much better and you make better decisions collectively so i think probably more than anything else it's been the value of a team and a diverse team i mean you know there were moments when i just wish all five of us were the same as me because it would have been <laughs> a lot easier <laughs> apart from anything else we would have all had the same sense of humor and found the same things funny but i know that would have been a disaster yeah. you know with all my weaknesses it would have been you know terrible so to close this interview out, I like to ask people some quick fire questions. Right. Okay. So don't give it too much thought. Okay. If you could have any superpower, what would you choose? To fly. If you could only have three apps on your mobile phone, what would they be? I'm not an app person. Something about communication, WhatsApp, it would have to be communication with others. It would have to be the BBC news. I'm a news junkie, so it would have to be something about news. And something about, you know, number of steps, number of calories, activity I'm doing, that sort of thing. What is a mistake people often make about you? They think I'm really, really confident all the time. Okay. So how do you get in the way of your own success? By being overly self-critical. When you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be first secretary, then a hairdresser, and then a physio. But I wanted to be a physio for a football team. It's so funny. At the beginning of this, I said, did you work in football? She was like, no. I know. I really, I thought that was weird. No, my dream was to be physio for West Ham Football Club, and I still never made it, so... I think I think I've read that somewhere that didn't read it properly and thought yeah. that you actually did. Yeah. And final question, what book have you read recently that you would recommend and why? So I've just finished How to Be Anti-Racist by, and it's not the Ibrahim one that most people talk about. Oh, it's by somebody, I think it's Jopling, I can't remember her name, but it's a really punchy America. It's a great, great book. It's really, it. really good. So are you active on Twitter? Yes. If people want to connect with you on Twitter, where can they go? Or what's your handle? So it's at K Middleton CSP. Excellent. Thank you so much, Karen. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could give us a shout out on social media. You can find me on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram again at THC Primary Care or on LinkedIn. Just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you really like it, it would be great if you left us an iTunes five star rating and review. And I will see you in the next episode.